Uh, back in the, the late 90s, I was still uh, serving in the U.S. Coast Guard, and I got stationed in California at this different unit called the Pacific Strike Team. And uh, we were a team of like 35 to 40 people. And um, what we would do is respond to chemical and oil spills, train car derailments, any kind of like hazardous waste stuff. And, and there are only three teams like this in the whole country. So the Pacific team uh, had this massive geographic area from the Rocky Mountains, every state west, Hawaii, Alaska, Saipan, Samoa, and Guam, and the Marshall Islands. And so we travel all around these places, usually in teams of two to 10 people. And so it was really important to, to cross-train about a third of us to be EMTs so that you know, we could respond at least in some way to our colleagues if somebody got hurt. And I was one of those people that got to go to EMT school, and, and that was kind of a fun part of my training. And, and I remember doing um, uh, like rounds in the ER, and one day, it was like an evening, and uh, the, the ER was pretty slow, and I was uh, meeting this new ER doc, and we were just kind of shooting the breeze, and a couple of nurses were there, and we're all just chilling and talking, and all of a sudden, these lights, like this ambulance pulls up and these lights are on and the door kicks open these medics bring in this guy he is a mess and um, they start to like the paramedics hand him off to the doctor and to the nurses and they bring him into the OR and I'm tagging along I'm already feet behind them and um, uh, the man's lung collapses right as we get him in and the doctor just looks at me and just goes you stand over there and like just and then the, the nurses just do like it's like they were choreographed with this beautiful dance. It was amazing. And just watching their focus and their skill, and they didn't need bedside manner. They just told each other exactly what to do. And that's exactly when you're on a gurney and your lungs collapse and someone has to put a thoracic vent in, you know, like you don't want people necessarily like, how was your day? And da, 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 da. You just want like laser focus and people who know exactly what to do. Right. Um, the good news is that on that particular night, this medical team was fully focused on their mission. They, they saw this guy on the gurney um, and they met that man and they did what they had to do with no fluff and no gimmicks. And that guy got to experience a lot more life after that evening. Now, from all you and I can tell about scripture and certainly what many of us know about Jesus from personal experience, maybe in prayer or in, in your own reading of scripture or in your own experience with Jesus throughout your life, you know, we know Jesus to be kind, loving, and gentle, and good, and capable. He is the unique blend of sovereign God and humble friend. You know, in, in Revelation, he's described by the same author in the same book as the lamb who was slain, like total weakness, and the lion of Judah, total strength combined into one person. But during his earthly ministry, Jesus was focused on his mission as the Messiah, God's chosen deliverer. The one promised by the prophets to lead Israel back to the right to a right relationship with God. And as a result, if that happened, then Israel would be winning the nations back to relationship with God. That's how it was supposed to work. Now, in this evening's passage in the Gospel of Mark, Mark reveals some of the good news to us about Jesus's messianic mission and his good, the good news of his laser focus on that mission. 
What I'm going to read to you is part of the passage for tonight. We're going to take it in a couple of different sections. This first part is Mark 7, 24 through 30. This picks up right where we left off last week, and it goes like this. Jesus got up and went from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know about it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this answer, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Now, as you would imagine, a person who's traveling around, doing a bunch of miracles, announcing the reign of God, and then sparring in public successfully, by the way, with these religious leaders like the Pharisees and the scribes, as we saw from the passage last week, the social temperature is going to get hot. The controversy is going to surround Jesus. And so he takes a little break from the limelight, at least he tries to. And he goes to a place that not many self-respecting Jews would go. He goes to a Gentile land, a Gentile region in Tyre. It didn't matter because Jew or Gentile, it didn't matter. When a man like Jesus comes to town, word is going to get out. And we're introduced to a woman who's who's described as a Gentile. That's a non-Jewish person, not only in ethnicity or culture, but but non-Jewish in religion as well. Uh, And she's described as a Syrophoenician by ethnicity or by race is how it's translated. Um, She persistently asked Jesus to heal her daughter who was possessed by a demon. And and Jesus says something that definitely offends our sensibilities um, as nice, emotionally intelligent, um, politically correct Bellinghamsters in 2024. I mean, you don't call a woman a dog. I don't care who you are, even though... Uh, my daughters call me dog all the time. What's up, dog? Or um, I don't know if you older folks know this, but your toes are called dogs nowadays. So if you've got your feet up, don't touch me with your dogs, yo. Um, anyway, that's, that's common banter in my house, at least. Um, uh, so so this, this offends our sensibilities. Like, why doesn't Jesus just do the nice thing? Isn't he a nice man? Like, why does he go through all this banter? Why does he say this about, you know, feeding the children first? And it's not good to give their bread to the dogs, right? Um, Now, Jesus, on the surface, doesn't refuse your request. He says, let the children be satisfied first, for it's not good for the children's bread, um, to to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. And and let me just flesh this out a little bit. In ancient Hebrew writings, we know that children was a common term for for Israelites, uh, the children of God. And and, and dogs was a common term often used to describe Gentiles or non-Jews. Pretty offensive stereotypes, even in our own parlance, but if you're like me, when you think of dog, you know, I think of my fluffy labradoodle with the kids always putting like a, 
like a hat on or sunglasses and she's super cute. And the dogs in this time period were not domesticated or at least they weren't in people's homes. They were, they were disgusting and mangy and, and, and scavengers and they ran in packs and you wouldn't want to encounter them really because they might nip at you if you weren't looking, right? So this is, this is an insult. It's a bigger insult than it would be today. And it ruffles our sensibilities so much that over the years, various interpreters of scripture have tried to soften this scene because it doesn't seem like it lines up with the image of Jesus we have uh, in, in the rest of scripture, let alone in the way that we like to think about him, right? So one interpreter who's usually like, I like this guy, he's usually super meticulous in his exegesis, you know, he, he writes about this text, you can almost see the smirk and hear the chuckle in Jesus's voice when he banters with this woman. As if to say, oh, Jesus was just sort of wink-wink joking. But like, if you play that out logically, that's almost more cruel. Like, I know your daughter has a demon, but hey, your dog, you know, like, that just doesn't, doesn't help me. And I think it's reading into the text big time. Um, some feminist scholars read this as Jesus being put in his place by the woman um, who, who, who met his racism with the more powerful argument. So that's that's a... Uh, um, from a, a popular feminist point of view. Some liberation theologians from Latin America point out that this woman was likely wealthy, and in that culture, dog stealing from children was a way also of speaking about someone rich taking advantage of the poor. And so they're like, that's probably what this is talking about. It's a justice thing. And you know, there might be more merit uh, to some of these interpretations than others, but if I might just take a moment as your pastor to, to, to teach um, while in the midst of preaching. Um, let me just say that whenever we try and reconcile a text that makes us feel uncomfortable by reading into that text with our own sensibilities from our own cultural context, we're almost always going to miss the point. We're almost always going to miss the point. When a text like this one bothers us, we should pay attention we should pay more attention. People, and think about this just for yourself, people rarely change their mind from messages that just reinforce what they already think or reinforce what they already feel. Like, it's kind of good that the Bible bothers us from time to time. That's pushing us towards something. Rather than reading into a text like this, then, we, we, I, think, I think the tack is we've got to be humble and admit that maybe we don't understand what's going on. But whatever it is, think about, just, let me just take us up a little, one step higher than this passage. Think of the whole book of Mark. And think of Mark the evangelist, who's trying to reach Gentile people. He's trying to reach Gentile people. Most scholars believe that Mark was writing primarily to a non-Jewish audience. And Mark has his whole picture. Mark is the smallest gospel. He has all the corpus. He's, he knows Peter personally. Like He knows so much about Jesus. Why does he choose this story to add? Mark doesn't seem to be embarrassed by it. So we've got to ask ourselves, why is this here? Mark's trying to reach Gentiles. He has this very offensive story against a Gentile woman. He doesn't seem to be embarrassed about it. And in fact, his whole gospel is supposed to be good news about Jesus. For whatever reason, he thinks this story communicates good news. Now, I just have to throw up my hand and say, I don't on the surface understand 
But that's just a place of humility rather than trying to read in and make excuses for Jesus. So for me, where do I start with this? Well, for me, the best place to start whenever interpreting scripture, but especially hard passages, is to try and interpret scripture with scripture first. And we might want to ask ourselves, have we ever heard a story before about, about a person from Phoenicia, particularly maybe a woman from Phoenicia? And it just so turns out, I could think of two. Uh, and they're two very different women. And they're in the same book of the Bible. They're both in 1 Kings. And one of those women is Jezebel. You heard of her, right? Uh, a wicked queen uh, who was a Gentile who married a Jewish king. And she kind of like was very evil. <laughs> she, um, she led Israel towards idolatry and human sacrifice and was unethical. And I mean, I'm, I'm using euphemisms. She was, if, any, if anyone was a dog, it was just about like, she, she was not a good lady. Um, anyway, and, and because of leading Israel towards idolatry and all of these horrible practices, a drought comes over the land. And what happens is there's this prophet, Elijah, and during that drought, God tells him, I want you to go stay with this Gentile lady. Uh, she's a widow. I want you to just go to her house. And so he's like, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to go to her house. And it turns out, you know, he says like, hey, can you make me some bread? I'm really hungry. She says, I just have enough flour, a handful of flour, it says in the Bible, and a little bit of oil in a jar. That's all I have. I've got me and my son to feed, and you want me to make you bread. I guess I'll make you this bread, but then my son's going to starve and, and we're all going to die because there's a drought and there's no food growing and nothing. So she makes him the bread. And then a miracle happens. And she keeps dipping into that flour and into that oil. And day after day after day throughout the drought, there's enough to make bread for the day. And God blesses her. Now, what happens is her son dies. And she petitions Elijah, just like the Syrophoenician petitions Jesus. My son's dead. Now you really brought it on me. And this is the one where Elijah does that weird thing where he lays out on the kid and breathes into him and prays and God raises him from the dead. So you got two Phoenician women, Jezebel and this widow. One is an example of horrible unfaithfulness and corruption. The other one, also a Gentile, an example of great faithfulness, great faithfulness. She humbled herself. She was probably an idolater too, but she humbled herself after seeing the miracle God did through the prophet and she called on God when her time was desperate. Now, let's consider the immediate context of Mark's gospel with the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, we're gonna get into what follows in a moment, but if we look at what comes before, we see Jesus has been healing and transforming lives for the better when the scribes and the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, right, and the Bible scholars come to investigate him. Now, rather than seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of the scriptures that they, they claim to know so well, they have eyes, but they don't see. And they're hearing Jesus and his teaching, but they don't hear, they don't perceive who he really is. They don't perceive that Jesus is the Messiah. And in fact, they believe he is impure, and unholy and unclean. That's the religious leaders who had come from Jerusalem to investigate Jesus. Now consider that the next story is this Syrophoenician woman. If you were to define impurity by a first century scribe or a Pharisee, you could hardly do better than describing this woman. 
She's a Gentile. She's a woman. No man accompanied her when she just barges in and like begs Jesus. It's Pretty uncouth in first century world to do that. Um, Not only is she a Gentile woman, but she brings another female with her, her daughter, who's not just a regular Gentile woman. She's also carrying an unclean demon inside of her. This is the textbook of uncleanness. And not only is this woman unclean and her daughter's unclean, but Jesus has gone to a place that's unclean, full of idolaters and idolatry temples, it's, it's gross, like from a purity standpoint. There's pigs probably in these people's yard. I mean, nothing's kosher there, right? And to Mark's original audience, the shocking part of this story is not that Jesus refers to her as a dog, but that this woman, so, she shows such faith and persistence and boldness. Compared to the judgmental, prideful hearts of the Pharisees, this woman shows incredible faith and understanding and persistence and perception. And she wins this argument with Jesus. She is crafty in a good way. But Jesus isn't just a wandering miracle worker. I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Just pay attention to all the things we don't hear Jesus doing, right? A lot of times he'll go to a village and he's healing everybody and there's lines of people lined up and then he'll be like, you know, my father's calling me to go to another town. And he leaves and there's like, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 people that haven't been healed. Um, There's lots of things Jesus didn't do. He wasn't just there to do tricks and card shows, even to, to set up like a clinic where he would just heal everybody. Jesus was very focused on his messianic mission. And I'm so glad that he was. Because just like the ER staff who focused on their job, more on their job than making small talk or putting band-aids on everyone who came in, they focused on what they needed to do in a triage setting with you know, competency. Um, it, it's so good that Jesus was focused on his vocation as Messiah. To understand this a bit more, we're going to look at the two stories that come next. Um, Here they go. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre, and he came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, within the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and who spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. After spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva and looking up to heaven with a sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was removed and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished saying, he's done all things well He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Okay, not long after this passage, we get to 8, 22 through 26. Uh, And then they came to Bethsaida and they brought to him a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Sound really familiar, right? Uh, Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. After spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see men for I see them like trees walking around. And then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him home saying, 
do not even enter the village. Two stories of healings. One was a deaf man who could not speak well. The man, the second guy was blind. Two stories that share so many of the same details. Both men are brought to Jesus by others. Both, um, you know, implore him to heal them. Jesus takes them both outside of the, the, the crowd setting and, and does it. He uses saliva in both of these. He touches them in both of these. Um, and he touches the part of the body that's not working on both of them. So a lot of the same details. Now, it shouldn't surprise you when I tell you that these are not just healing stories. Notice the specific types of ailments that these are, right? Deafness, muteness, blindness. Why is that significant? Because in the scriptures, God continually warns people that if they worship idols, they'll become just like those idols. Having eyes but not seeing, having mouths but not speaking, having uh, ears but not hearing. In other words, idolatry dulls us to the work of God in our lives. We cannot perceive God in his word when we become dulled and numb from our idolatry. We can't perceive Jesus for who he is when we're dull of heart and sight and spiritual hearing. The Pharisees and scribes seem to bow to the idol of their self-righteousness, even to the idol of thinking that they're the sole interpreters of God's scriptures and that everyone else has got it wrong. They are, I think, under the idolatry of thinking that they've mastered scripture rather than being mastered by scripture. They're more afraid, I think, the scribes and Pharisees, more afraid of losing their honored positions in society than they are about missing the messianic movement of Jesus going on around them. You know, and many of us, I think, if we're honest, we've grown dull to the work of God in our lives because of our own sorts of idolatry. I I don't have any little statues in my house, little wooden or stone statues. You probably don't either. If you do, let's talk. That's... Uh, But anyway, I I don't think that kind of idolatry is what we have going on. But, you know, some of us might recognize that we have um, an overzealous affection for our possessions, say, or the thrill of the hunt of acquiring more and more. For some, you know, it's the need to be noticed and admired by other people. And that that need to be noticed and admired can be so crippling for some of us that we, we just love the approval more than anything else. For some, it's the addiction to achievement and performance. It can be overwhelming, make us numb to the grace of Jesus because we might sing about grace at church and hear sermons about grace at church, even teach other people about grace. But really, we're living for our achievements and for our performance, and that's where we get our true validation. That's a form of idolatry. And maybe we seek comfort, right? Oh, that's such a popular um, American dream, right? It's a narrative. Like, you can have comfort. You can have this pill that makes you feel better. You don't have to do anything. You can lose weight if you do this thing. Um, Our comfort for security and food and sex and, and financial stability, none of those things are bad in themselves, only if they became become crutches for us, right? And take the rightful place of Jesus in our lives. Then they become something that dulls us to the work of God. And the worst thing about idols, I think, is that they can cause us to become so blind and deaf to Jesus and his kingdom 
that we don't realize we're stuck. We don't realize we stuck, we're stuck, right? We think there's something wrong with God. Why aren't you talking louder to me? Why aren't you doing more for me? Now, the good news. Do you know what the vocation of the Messiah entails in the scripture? Part of it is described in Isaiah 35, which Jeremy read for us just a few moments ago. Let me read part of that passage again, particularly verses five and six. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Hear me. If you have very real physical disabilities or something going on in your life that you cannot wait to be healed from, that is a promise coming to us in the new creation. We can look forward to that. But this statement is not about actual blindness or actual deafness or actual muteness or actual lameness. This is about the consequences of idolatry. That's why Israel was in captivity. That's why God told Isaiah to write Isaiah. And that's why this promise matters to people who are stuck in idolatry. This this is an undoing of the curse of idolatry. Think of how many of Jesus's mighty deeds in scripture are healings of these particular ailments. You ever think about that? Like you never hear about uh, Jesus healed the flu the other day or Jesus, you know, I don't know, healed that case of gout or, you know, there's a lot of things I'm sure Jesus did, but the parts that make it into the scriptures are these fulfillments of, of the prophecies. And before we go just a little further, let me just say a few things about idols in the ancient world. You know, they could be made of wood, stone, precious metals, even living trees. And pagan priests didn't believe, popular, maybe popular um, belief, pagan priests didn't believe that the stone or the statue was the god or the goddess. But they believed that the spirit of the god or the goddess could indwell that idol. So that if the spirit of the god or goddess was in Seattle, and we live up here in Bellingham, that we could make a little statue of the god Seattle and um, make a little totem. And how would you get the spirit of the god to come visit Bellingham? You would do something called the Mizpe incantation. And a priest would do all of these fancy words, but they would use saliva and they would spit and they would put that saliva on the eyes of the god or goddess and they would say an incantation and then the god could see out of that little idol. And they would put spit on the ears of that god or goddess and then the god in Seattle could hear through the statue in Bellingham. And you see where I'm going with this. This Miss P incantation was how um, idolaters um, tried to, to invite the spirit of the god or goddess to come to their locality and indwell the little statue. Now think of these two healings. These are active parables. Jesus is really healing these people who really want healing from these things. But the message is a double message. It's not just healing the ailment. It's an undoing of the curse. If it's a curse of idolatry that you stop perceiving reality with your spiritual senses, you could be looking at Jesus in the face and not perceive that he's the Messiah and the son of God that, because you've become like an idol. Why does Jesus spit as part of his cure when he could have just said the words and healed them? Because he is the ultimate priest. 
He is undoing the curse of idolatry, not through the Ms. P incantation, but by reversing it. By opening our ears and our eyes and our mouths, Jesus animates us with the Holy Spirit of God, softening our hard hearts, opening our eyes, making our ears attentive, our mouths capable of responding to praise of the living God. It's good news that Jesus was focused on the messianic mission and not just a willy-nilly miracle worker because he was not sidetracked he, was, he followed through on his rescue mission all the way to the cross where he died for us that we could be free from the trap of idolatry. And I just want to invite us to a few moments as we prepare to come around the communion table to commune with Jesus. I, I want to close in a time of silence for us to consider how we might need deliverance from our own idolatry. What are those thoughts and feelings and actions that dull you from intimacy with Jesus? What are those things that God might be bringing to mind and just saying like, I see you, I see that you feel stuck and I want to deliver you. Um, I encourage you to to come into this time and, and be thinking about with that with the Lord as we prepare to partake in the table together. us to come to you. Thank you that you are the kind of God who knows us already, every thought and feeling and action, even the things we've yet to do, and yet you love us and you desire to deliver us. Lord, deliver us from those things that have risen up in our consciousness just in these past few minutes. Deliver us, Lord, from those thoughts, from those habits, from those recurring feelings that prevent us from drawing close to you, that cripple us with fear or distraction or addiction. Lord, bless you for your forgiveness, for your mercy, for your grace. Help us to walk in new freedom in the power of your spirit.